Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 22nd edition of the Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Juan Castro sustained injuries when he fell out of a tree he was trimming at an apartment complex owned by Kirby Manor Corporation and managed by Hallmark Realty. Hallmark had hired Marcos Patino to provide landscaping services, including tree trimming, and Patino in turn had hired Castro to help him trim the trees. Castro filed a civil negligence action against Kirby and Hallmark and alleged that he was injured in the course of his employment and that the defendants failed to secure any workers' compensation insurance coverage to cover any workplace injury. He went on to allege that the failure to obtain a workers' compensation policy entitled him to bring a civil action for negligence under Labor Code Section 3706. Hallmark and Kirby filed a motion for summary judgment and contended that it did have workers' compensation insurance and therefore Castro's exclusive remedy was through the workers' compensation system. Hallmark submitted a true and correct copy of its workers' comp policy in effect at the time of Castro's accident. Castro then argued that even assuming there was a valid workers' compensation policy, Hallmark had not produced evidence that Castro met the minimum number of hours required to qualify for workers' compensation coverage. The trial court granted the motion for summary judgment, and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Castro v. Knowlton Manor's Apartments. The exclusive remedy rule ordinarily protects an employer from suits by an employee for injuries during the course of employment. One exception to that rule appears in Section 3706, which provides that an injured employee may bring a civil action for damages against any employer who fails to secure the payment of compensation. An employer complies with its obligation by either purchasing workers' compensation insurance or by self-insuring. It is the plaintiff's obligation to plead and prove a violation of Labor Code 3700 by his employer's failure to carry workers' comp insurance. The court noted that Mr. Castro cited several cases he suggested indicating that a defendant must show a plaintiff actually received workers' compensation benefits for the claimed injuries before a plaintiff can be barred from pursuing a damages action for the same injuries. The court reviewed his argument in the cases and concluded that none of his cases, however, said anything like that. The employer need only show he secured payments for benefits. Entitlement to those benefits is not an issue triggering the right to sue for negligence. Dina Baron Ramirez and her husband, Jaime Ramirez, contracted with AT&T to have a home security system installed in their residence. Jamie Mattis, an electrician employed by Endeavor Telecom, an AT&T subcontractor, was dispatched to the Ramirez home to complete the installation. During the installation work, he, as he was descending the stairs from the second to the first floor, he fell and fractured his leg. After falling, Mr. Mattis saw the carpet runner had separated a seam and detached from some of the stairs. He was not sure what caused his fall. However, he assumed it was due to the carpet runner. 
He recovered work comp benefits for his medical expenses and wage loss. But two years after that, and after settling his work comp case, he sued the homeowners, claiming the accident was caused by a loose carpet runner, which made the staircase unreasonably dangerous. The homeowners moved for a non-suit at the end of their case-in-chief on the grounds that there was no substantial evidence to support a finding that the homeowners knew or should have known of a concealed pre-existing hazard condition on the stairs. And the trial court granted the motion, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in his case in the unpublished decision of Mattis v. Ramirez. The PREVENT rule holds that the hirer of an independent contractor is not liable for on-the-job injuries to the independent contractor's employees. One of PREVENT's underpinnings is the availability of workers' comp benefits to the injured employee. It would be unfair to impose liability on the hiring person when the liability of the contractor, the one primarily responsible for the workers on the job injuries, is limited to providing workers' compensation coverage. Thus, principally because of the availability of workers' compensation, a useful way to view these cases is in the terms of delegation. The hirer delegates to the independent contractor the duty to provide the contractor's employees with a safe working environment. The evidence in this case was undisputed that the homeowners were not carpet experts and had never installed carpet themselves. They hired a professional carpet installer to do so in 2004, part of the carpet of their residence and the purchase price. After installation, the carpet covering Each stair tread lay perfectly flat and did not move. Two California district attorneys are teaming up to sue a home cleaning and repair gig company for allegedly misclassifying tens of thousands of workers as independent contractors. The district attorneys of San Francisco and Los Angeles sued the New York-based company Handy.com, which operates an online application that allows customers to schedule home cleaning and repair services. Handy has scheduled home cleaning and repair gigs for tens of thousands of workers in California, according to the district attorney's pleadings. The lawsuit accuses Handy of failing to pay minimum wage and overtime wages or reimburse job-related expenses such as cleaning supplies. It also claims the company denied workers sick leave and did not pay unemployment insurance or payroll taxes. It further accuses the company of illegally imposing fines on workers and deducting pay from their wages. Additionally, it claims the company did not cover quarterly health care expenditures for workers in San Francisco as required by a city ordinance. The San Francisco deputy DA said Handy cannot satisfy the three requirements necessary to classify workers as independent contractors under current state law. The California Supreme Court established a three-pronged standard known as the ABC test for determining a worker's employment status in its 2018 ruling in the Dynamex case. That standard was later written into state law with the passage of Assembly Bill 5 in 2019. The district attorneys seek a court order requiring Handy to classify workers as employees, pay civil penalties, 
and provide restitution to workers for unpaid wages and job expense reimbursement. A handy spokesperson said it would vigorously defend the case in court. Last year, voters approved a ballot measure in California, backed by Uber and Lyft, that exempted app-based transportation and delivery workers from California's labor law, allowing those companies to continue classifying their workers as independent contractors. The California Attorney General joined a coalition of district and city attorneys and filed a lawsuit against Tennessee-based Brookdale Senior Living Incorporated, the nation's largest senior living operator. The company has over 70,000 staff members and 100,000 residents spread across 800 facilities in 45 states. The lawsuit, which concerns Brookdale's 10 California skilled nursing facilities, alleges that Brookdale ignored laws that protect patient safety when they were discharged. Senior care centers are paid substantially more by Medicare than by other sources such as Medi-Cal, leading the facilities to covet those residents. California accuses Brookdale of pushing out others to make way for the highest bidder, regardless of care and treatment needs, while ignoring the patient's legal protections. The lawsuit also alleges that Brookdale gave false information to the Centers for Medicare Medicare and Medicaid, information which CMS uses to award star ratings to skilled nursing facilities so that consumers can choose a quality facility. By lying to CMS, Brookdale allegedly fraudulently increased its star rating in several categories to attract prospective patients and their families. The lawsuit also alleges that Brookdale failed to properly notify its patients and families of transfers and discharges. Skilled nursing facilities are required to give notice of transfer or discharge at least 30 days in advance or as soon as practicable. In the lawsuit, the coalition argues that by engaging in these unfair business practices, Brookdale violated both the unfair competition law and false advertising law. A Brookdale spokesperson denied the allegations and noted the state has either filed or threatened to file similar actions against other senior facilities. And now our crime report. 53-year-old Veronica Catalina Cortez Ambrosio, who lives in Madeira, was charged with two felony counts of insurance fraud after allegedly lying about physical limitations from an injury at work in an attempt to receive workers' comp benefits. Back in 2017, Cortez Ambrosio was working for a farm labor company when she was struck with a gardening tool by a co-worker, resulting in injuries to her right shoulder, neck, and back. She claimed to experience severe and nearly constant pain related to the injury and was unable to perform everyday activities such as sitting, standing, walking, reaching, and lifting. Cortez Ambrosio's employer offered her modified duties due to her stated limitations, but she refused and did not return to work. Later, video surveillance was obtained of Cortez Ambrosio during the time she claimed physical limitations due to the work injury. The video showed her cleaning in and around her home, doing yard work, ascending and descending stairs, reaching overhead, 
and lifting, all tasks she claimed she could not perform and prevented her from returning to work. Cortez Ambrosio's alleged fraudulent claims led her, to, led her employer's insurance company to pay about $48,000 in unnecessary medical, investigative, and legal costs. She is scheduled to be arraigned on May 26th, and this case is being prosecuted by the Fresno County District Attorney's Office. And now our regulatory news. National Emphasis Programs, or NEPs, are temporary programs that focus OSHA's resources on particular hazards and high-hazard industries. This March, OSHA announced policies and procedures for implementing a new national emphasis program to ensure that employees in high-hazard industries or work tasks are protected from the hazard of contracting COVID-19. The newest NEP augments OSHA's efforts addressing unprogrammed COVID-19-related activities, such as complaints, referrals, and severe incident reports, by adding a component to target specific high-hazard industries or activities where this hazard is prevalent. The NEP targets establishments that have worked with increased potential exposure to COVID-19, and that puts the largest number of workers at serious risk. In addition, this NEP includes an added focus to ensure that workers are protected from retaliation and are accomplishing this by preventing retaliation where possible, distributing anti-retaliation information during inspections and outreach opportunities, as well as promptly referring allegations of retaliation to the Whistleblower Protection Program. Also this March, OSHA issued an updated interim enforcement response plan for coronavirus disease 2019. The updated plan provides new instructions and guidance to area offices and compliance safety and health officers for handling COVID-19 related complaints, referrals, and severe illness reports. The Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, Cheswick, examines the health and safety and workers' compensation systems in California and makes recommendations to improve this system. Cheswick is composed of eight members appointed by the Governor, Senate, and Assembly to represent employers and labor. Cheswick conducts research, releases public reports, presents findings, and provides information on the health and safety and workers' compensation systems. And they have just released the 247-page 2020 annual report. Here are some of the highlights of many of the topics covered in this report. It says the Return to Work Supplemental Program administers a $120 million fund that makes supplemental payments to workers whose permanent disability benefits are disproportionately low in comparison to their earnings losses. However, a recent Cheswick study by RAND that evaluated the Return to Work Fund found a low rate of receipt of the supplemental benefits among eligible workers. Cheswick made a number of recommendations including increasing outreach and notification to help increase participation in this program. 
and research on the impact of the 2012 workers' compensation reforms on earnings losses suggests that SB 863 has likely met its primary objective of restoring adequate wage replacement rates. Although Cheswick says some inequities still exist in these rates across impairments. Also, the DWC recently adopted changes in its physician services, non-physician practitioner services fee schedule to encourage greater use of telehealth in light of the COVID-19 public health emergency. The commission recommended that administrators monitor and study the use of telehealth and other medical care changes in work comp in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. In recent years, criminal indictments and prosecutions have highlighted the extent of medical provider fraud in the work comp system. Cheswick estimates of the cost of this fraud to participate in the workers' compensation system are as high as $1 billion per year. They suggest that officials consider recommendations in the RAND report called Provider Fraud in California Workers' Compensation related to correcting or limiting provider fraud. Another Cheswick study found that between $15 billion and $68 billion in payroll is underreported annually. A related study on split class codes found that 25 to 30 percent of low-wage payroll is underreported or misreported. The massive unemployment insurance fraud during the pandemic, including the estimated $11 billion loss by the California Employment Development Department, has apparently triggered federal legislators to act. This month, they introduced the Unemployment Insurance Technology Modernization Act to help solve the fraud problem. One of the bill's sponsors provided the following rationale. He said that state unemployment insurance systems have been neglected for decades, with many running on technology from the 1960s. These outdated systems are also susceptible to attacks from organized criminal networks that have stolen billions of taxpayer dollars from the program. It is clear that an upgrade is long overdue. He went on to say that rather than invest in 53 state systems, the Unemployment Insurance Technology Modernization Act would invest in federal technology capabilities all states could use, to administer their unique unemployment insurance programs. Specifically, the Unemployment Insurance Technology Modernization Act requires the U.S. Department of Labor to work with technology experts to develop, operate, and maintain a modular set of technology capabilities to modernize unemployment compensation technology. States will be able to use all of the capabilities or to choose only those capabilities that meet their needs. According to the language of the proposed act, the secretary shall develop, operate, and maintain a modular set of technology capabilities to modernize the delivery of unemployment compensation not later than two years after the date of enactment of this new law. The NCCI is tracking legislation to establish or extend workers' compensation presumptions for COVID-19 for certain workers.
In 2020, nine states enacted COVID-19 presumption legislation, including California. Many of these COVID-19 workers' compensation presumptions are temporary in nature. This year, several of the states that enacted COVID-19 presumption legislation in 2020 are taking additional action to extend or expand those presumptions. And new trends are emerging. While many of the bills monitored in 2020 focused on establishing presumptions that were applicable primarily to first responders or healthcare workers, several of the current legislative proposals establish presumptions for additional categories of workers. For example, legislation in Maryland, Minnesota, and Texas would establish presumptions for teachers and school employees. Legislation in Montana and Texas would establish presumptions for nurses as a separate category from health care workers. Several states have proposed legislation to create workers' compensation presumptions of compensability that could be applicable beyond the current COVID-19 pandemic. While several of these bills specifically mention COVID-19, some of the proposals also contain terms such as contagious disease, COVID-19, or similar disease, or other future qualifying pandemic. This could mean that the presumption would still be applicable even after the current COVID-19 pandemic ends. Many of these proposals do not include sunset provisions or expiration dates, so they may not be temporary in nature. With opioid overdose deaths increasing during the pandemic, the Drug Enforcement Administration announced its 20th take-back day scheduled for April 24. At its last take-back day in October, the DEA collected a record-high amount of expired unused prescription medications, with the public turning in close to 500 tons of unwanted drugs. Over the 10-year span of the Take Back Day program, the DEA has brought in more than 6,800 tons of prescription drugs. With studies indicating a majority of abused prescription drugs come from family and friends, including from home medicine cabinets, clearing out unused medicine is essential. The public can drop off potentially dangerous prescription medications at collection sites which will adhere to local COVID-19 guidelines and regulations. The DEA and its partners will collect tablets, capsules, patches, and other solid forms of prescription drugs. But liquids, including intravenous solutions, syringes, and other sharps, and illegal drugs will not be accepted. The DEA will continue to accept vaping devices and cartridges at its drop-off locations, provided the lithium batteries are removed. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, 
and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. 